Testament with the life-changing message of salvation in Jesus Christ, we're going to end up, I believe, in a small circle talking only to ourselves. There's a lot of change that has happened. For example, in 1950, the marriage rate for women age 15 and older was 90.2 marriages per thousand. 90.2 per thousand women ages 15 and over uh, were married in America. 1996, the rate had dropped to 49.7 marriages per thousand, the lowest rate in the history of the nation, meaning that fewer and fewer and fewer women are getting married these days. According to the National Center for Health Statistics, in 2003, there were 1.4 million children born out of wedlock. 34% of all U.S. live births born to women out of wedlock. And beloved, this is at a time when abortion kills over a million babies a year. The U.S. Census Bureau reports only 22% of U.S. households are currently in the configuration of traditional nuclear families. That's a father and a mother, first marriage and children. Only 22% of U.S. households. This is the culture into which God has called us to minister. It has really changed a lot. Recent issue of World Magazine, in fact, the issue dated February 25th, of this year has an editorial in, the, in that magazine examining welfare reform and uh, pointing out the strong influence of feminism in the process of reforming the welfare roles and the, the role of feminism in that and the active communication that basically a family doesn't need a man to be whole. That's the message that is flowing through the whole welfare reform movement. And while men are frequently guilty of the breakup of the families, there's no question about that, and the resultant problems of single-parent homes, right? Single-mom homes. The solution is not to define men out of the equation as if they are unnecessary, extra baggage. And it's into this mess, and it is a mess, It is a mess of convulsing morals and competing ideas that God has called you and me to minister. It is the year 2006. This is the world in which we have been placed to minister. It's it's maybe not the world we'd like it to be, but it is the world that it is. This is where we are. This This is the world in which we must live and minister for Jesus Christ in a way that is distinctly Christian. Distinctly Christian. And bad as it is, and believe me, it's bad. There is also with that a tremendous opportunity. Right? A a light set on a hill will shine, provided we don't slap a bushel basket over the top of it, right? So, tonight... I want to look with you at two areas in which we must have a godly perspective in order to live like a Christian. 
two very, very significant areas where we must have God's perspective and we must conform our lives to that perspective so that we will live like a Christian and the world will look on and they will see something entirely different. First, we must have a godly perspective towards marriage. We must have a godly perspective towards marriage. And secondly, we must have a godly perspective towards money. Marriage and money is what I want to talk about tonight. Two incredibly important but difficult topics to deal with. One of the uh, beauties of teaching through the Scriptures sort of verse by verse on an expository basis is that it forces you to deal with topics that you might ordinarily pass over. And, and believe me, verse 4 would be one that I would probably pass over. But I've got to deal with it. And so we're going to deal with it. And by God's grace, we're going to deal with it directly. We're going to deal with it clearly, but we're going to deal with it sensitively. That's my hope and prayer and goal tonight. We are in Hebrews chapter 13. We are looking at verses 4 through 6. If you're not there yet, why don't you open your Bibles there? Let me read, uh, read what it says. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Marriage and money. That's what we want to talk about tonight. And we want to gain God's perspective on these two topics so that we will live like a Christian. So let's begin here in verse 4 and pick up God's perspective towards marriage. There is a clear implication that comes from the overall message of this book, which is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And that is that the supremacy of Jesus Christ rolls to the marriage relationship as well. I mean, after all, He's the one who created it. Let me just uh, remind you of the reasons for marriage. And for that, I need to turn you all the way back to Genesis So go with me all the way to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. Basically, there are three reasons for marriage, three biblical reasons for marriage. Marriage is created by God. It is His creation, and accordingly, it is His prerogative to to govern it, to establish how it is to be operated. And basically, as I say, there are three reasons that are given to us in the Scriptures. They are simply procreation, partnership, and I'm calling it pleasure. So procreation, partnership, and pleasure. The first reason here in chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 28, is procreation. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The first biblical reason for marriage is procreation. It is to have children. It's as simple as that. It is to produce children. 
Beyond that, it is partnership. And you can go to chapter 2, verse 18 for that. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Partnership. The second biblical reason for marriage is partnership. That it's not good to be alone, God says. And so He creates the first marriage to fulfill that need. And finally, what I'm calling pleasure. And for that, I'm going to take you back to the New Testament, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There is a pleasure aspect to the marriage relationship. The intimacy of the marriage relationship. Chapter 7, 1 Corinthians, verse 2, Paul says, But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There is a pleasure aspect to the marriage relationship and it is, a, it is a granting of mutual satisfaction one to the other in which each partner has an obligation to provide for the other partner their needs. This is the way God has created marriage. It is for these purposes. Now, this relationship, go back with me to Hebrews 13. This relationship... This marriage relationship must be guarded. It must be guarded against all assaults from both inside and outside the community of faith. And it might might sound to you like, well, I can understand how it can be assaulted from outside the community of faith, but how can it be assaulted from inside? Well, it can. The marriage relationship can be assaulted from the inside as well as the outside. And the assault on marriage takes on one of essentially three different forms. And I want to just talk with you a little bit about what those are. They are asceticism, asceticism, libertinism, and neglect. So the three assaults upon the marriage relationship are either asceticism, libertinism, or neglect. Now notice here that in verse For the apostle says, let marriage be held in honor among all. It needs to be honored. And there are various ways, as we're going to look at here momentarily, through these three different assaults, that marriage is dishonored. Dishonored. Let's begin first with asceticism. Maybe we'll begin by just defining what an ascetic is. An ascetic is a a person who renounces the comforts of society in order to live a life closer to God. It is a person, an ascetic is a person who renounces the comforts of society in order to live a life closer to God. Now, there can be ascetics by direct order from God. A classic example would be John the Baptist. John the Baptist would be what you would classify as an ascetic directed by God to forego many of the comforts of society in order that he might be that voice crying in the wilderness. And so by direct order of God, it's a, it's a good thing. But many times, asceticism is based on a false understanding, a, a false, really platonic 
understanding of body and spirit. And that somehow the spirit is inherently superior to the body and the body is a sort of a lower life form. And that we draw close to God in our spirit, but in our body we are somehow more removed from Him. And so this false understanding downplays the body and wants to put aside the body and sort of commune with God in the spirit. All major forms of religion have ascetic expressions. All the major world religions, if you probe them, you will find a strain of asceticism that runs through them. So I say, in those bases, when it's not a direct command of God to put aside societal comforts, when it is based on this false notion of the spirit being closer to God than the body, then what you have is something that is, in fact, ungodly. Ungodly. And one of the areas where asceticism frequently attacks is the area of marriage. Marriage is frequently attacked as a mere fleshly pleasure that should be given up for God. The early church was plagued with Gnostic forms of asceticism, anti-marriage. In fact, uh, turn back with me to... um, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And Paul addresses this this incipient Gnosticism, this early form of Gnostic heresy, which said just basically that, that the spirit was closer to God, that the the body was somehow uh, evil or even less important. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. What are these deceitful spirits and doctrines? What are the doctrines of demons? Well, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God created to be gratefully enjoyed in by those who believe and know the truth. Men who forbid marriage. A doctrine of demons, the Apostle Paul says. And this anti-marriage sentiment crept into the early church very quickly. I mean, you see it here. You see the Apostle Paul warning Timothy against it. 1 Timothy, written in the early 60s. So it didn't take long for the church to be attacked from it. But we see fuller forms of this. For example, in the uh, 2nd century, the uh, Montanist movement. Those that followed Montanism, they advocated an enforced celibacy under under the false notion that to be celibate was to be closer to God. The 3rd century a famous or infamous, depending on what you think of him, church father named Origen had himself castrated because he believed that it would enable him to draw closer to God. Modern-day expressions of this anti-marriage asceticism can be found in the enforced celibacy that is prominent within the Roman Catholic Church. These are attacks upon marriage under a false notion. And so from within, asceticism can be an attack upon marriage and dishonor it. 
Beyond that is what I'm calling libertinism. It's just 180 degrees away. It's the exact opposite of asceticism. Libertinism, it's just sort of everything goes, right? It's just the body and the, you know, the, the body doesn't matter that much, so do whatever you want with it. So marriage has suffered under the assaults of unbridled liberty expressed our days in the terms sexual freedom, right? Sexual freedom. And Paul is addressing directly our Perhaps not Paul. Whoever is writing Hebrews is addressing directly here <laughs> the, uh, the attack on marriage, the libertine attack on marriage. Look again at verse 4. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now, that's a, that's a euphemism. It's talking about marital intimacy. It's saying, let marital intimacy be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. He's saying that, that the, the intimacy within a marriage is a, is a pure and, and holy and wonderful thing, but it can be defiled. It can be defiled, and it be defiled by those who attack it through a libertine expression. Now, he uses the words here, fornication and adultery. You see them? These terms are not synonymous terms in the New Testament. They are different concepts. Adultery implies unfaithfulness by either party to their marriage vow. That would be adultery. The word fornication or pornea, we get the word pornography from this Greek word pornea, and that covers a wide range of sexual deviations. So there is, there is adultery in which either partner is unfaithful to the covenant vow. There is fornication, which is a, a wide range of sexual deviations. These attack marriage. And marriage is definitely under attack. Not just here in the United States, by the way. It is under attack throughout the world. Throughout the world. Ungodly attitudes and behaviors, steeped in demonic expressions of freedom, self-expression, have produced all kinds of defiled lives. For example... The homosexual movement. The homosexual movement is an abomination to God, and it is an abomination to God for one fundamental reason. It is an attack upon marriage. It is an attack upon God's creation mandate to increase and what? Multiply and fill the earth. Right? And I don't need to tell you that it's not possible in that expression of sexual deviation. That's why God is so hard on it. So there is a homosexual movement and its agenda. We have it today. It existed at that time, at the time of this writing of this epistle. Beyond that, there is what I'm calling feminism. Another attack upon marriage. Another way that marriage is dishonored. Feminism. Feminism is at its core perverted because it, it's based on the notion that men and women are interchangeable and that men are essentially unnecessary, unnecessary and even harmful to a woman's need for what many call self-actualization. That men are a hindrance. They are unnecessary and they are a hindrance. 
This is as well a direct attack upon the creation mandate, right? To be fruitful and what? Multiply. If men are unnecessary and even a hindrance, there's an attack upon God's creation order. You know, over the radical feminist agenda, they consider marriage slavery and bondage. Those are the the exact terms that you will find when you read their writings. That marriage is slavery and bondage invented by men to oppress women. Many of the radical feminists, they see the, the, the fact that a woman alone can conceive and carry a child as sort of the ultimate insult and enslaving activity. Thus, they are absolutely wed to the abortion movement. Radical feminism and abortion are wed together because they come out of the same stinking well. Beyond that, marriage is under attack from promiscuity. Promiscuity. Promiscuity promotes the blasphemous idea of recreational sex. The expression of intimacy can, the notion that it can be somehow separated from the marriage covenant and that it is an amoral activity, much like eating or drinking or sleeping, and that it can be separated out from the marriage covenant and can be engaged in as one would engage in any other recreational activity. This is a direct attack on the creation mandate that the pleasure of marriage is a covenant pleasure to be enjoyed only by those who enter into covenant before God. Promiscuity. Adultery. Adultery is an attack upon marriage, right? The fundamental attack on a, of adultery is that one person is stealing another person's life partner. It is theft. It is theft and it is a, it is a theft that goes against natural law. Let me illustrate this for you. Go again back with me to Genesis. That'd be the name of a great seminar. Chapter 20. I know somebody got it. Chapter 20 and verse 9. Here in Genesis 20, Abraham is afraid that the the Canaanite king Abimelech will kill him and take his beautiful wife Sarah. And so he tells her to lie, right? Say that she is his sister. And so she is taken into his harem. But Abimelech finds out about it. By the way, that word means my father is king. She, he finds out about it and he confronts Abraham. And look at verse 8. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. In verse 9, Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom this great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. What did he do? He allowed him to take his wife. This pagan Canaanite king knew that 
You don't take another man's wife. It is, a, it is a natural law that is woven into the fabric. They might have engaged in all kinds of sexual sin and did, but they knew enough not to take another man's wife. Back to Hebrews 13. Adultery, beloved, is an attack upon the creation mandate of partnership. It is a tearing apart of the partnership, the one flesh relationship that is established at the marriage. So there are all these forms of of attack, and they were true in the apostles' day. They are true in our day. Expressions might be a little more sophisticated, but the fundamental underlying attacks remain. Notice how he warns. Do you see this warning here again? Look at verse 4. God will judge. Do you see that? This is just one one of many, many warnings that appear throughout the Scripture that these kinds of sins will be judged, that you cannot get away with them. Those who practice sexual sin will be judged. Scriptures are very clear. And the judgment, by the way, is not limited to just unbelievers. There is, a, there is a judgment of God. And the reason there is a judgment of God is because these things attack the very core foundational covenant and establishment that God made there back the first, on the sixth day of creation. So God thinks very, very seriously about those who attack marriage. For example, the Apostle Paul just Adding on here this notion of judgment, he says in chapter, or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words, right? Because there's lots of people going around and saying it's okay. He says, don't let anybody deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He says over in Colossians chapter 5, verses 5 through and 6, he says, <clears throat> excuse me, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul warns there that, he says, And let no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. God is the, is the avenger for those who transgress in these areas. The promise of God of judgment is certain. It is certain. Those who engage in sexual sin will experience God's judgment. It is a future eschatological judgment and it is a present judgment. Reality, judgment. Many, many people, including some Christians, can attest to the present judgment of God for having practiced these abominable doctrines of demons. Guilt, self-hatred, alienation, estrangement, STDs, illegitimacy, abortion, and a whole host of other miseries follow behind those who practice. 
these sins. Beloved, we have to think very clearly in this area. Very, very clearly. Very sharply. Now let me say, Christians can and do slip and fall into sin, right? Is that right? Okay, good. I want to make sure I wasn't the only one. I mean, Christians do. We do slip and fall into sin. And it is possible for Christians to slip and fall into sexual sin. It does happen. The difference is that they do not live in it as a matter of life. The Apostle Paul says over in Romans 6, why don't you just go over there with me and take a peek at that. Romans 6, verse 2. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him and that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Christians slip and fall into all kinds of sin, including sexual sin. But it is not where we live. We can fall into the pigsty, but we don't take up residence there. It doesn't matter what a person claims about their relationship to Jesus Christ. It does not matter what they claim their relationship is. It is their conduct that demonstrates outwardly the reality of that relationship. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and following. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. The church of Corinth had people that had been in all of these vile lifestyles. But Paul says that you have been washed. You have been justified. The Spirit of God now indwells you. You cannot continue to live like that. There is no place. There is no place in Christian, in the Christianity and Christian living for sexual sin. You've got to root it out. You've got to get rid of it. It belongs to the old life. It must go away. You must mortify the flesh as the old... Puritans would say, put off the old man in his behaviors, put on the new man in Christ. 
So asceticism is an attack on the marriage. Libertinism is an attack on marriage. There's one more. Neglect. Neglect is an attack on marriage. I'm not going to spend but just a moment on this, but understand that this within the Christian community can also be an attack upon marriage and an affront to the, to, to the honorable marriage relationship that the Apostle talks about here back in Hebrews 13. Neglect dishonors marriage primarily among those who profess Jesus Christ. And not just those who profess Him, I would say those who possess Him. It is, it is our sin. It is uniquely our sin. It is uniquely our sin because we know better. Dishonor occurs when husbands fail to take up their responsibilities of headship within a marriage. 1 Corinthians 11.3, Ephesians 5.23, Paul very clearly says that the husband is the head of the wife. By the way, that's not an imperative. Husbands, be the head of your wife. It's an indicative. Husbands are the head. It's a reality. Marriage falls into neglect and dishonor when husbands fail to sacrificially love their wives, right? Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved who? The church. Ooh. Marriage falls into dishonor and neglect when wives fail to submit to their husband's leadership, right? 1 Peter 3, 1, verse 6. Marriage falls into dishonor and neglect when husbands fail to be gentle with their wives. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. When husbands treat their wives like one of the guys, marriage falls into neglect and dishonor. So there are many ways it can be dishonored, many ways it can be attacked. We must have a godly perspective towards marriage. That takes us to the second area the apostle lays out for us back in Hebrews 13. So we not only have to have a godly perspective towards marriage, we have to have a godly perspective towards money, right? Verses 5 and 6. Let your character be free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. By the way, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, I quoted this for you a little bit earlier, verse 6. Right? It says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That these things refers earlier in the context, back up to verse 3, it says, But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. It's not just immorality, it's greed. It is greed that brings the judgment of God. It's fascinating. It seems as though immorality and covetousness go together. They sort of run hand in hand. I think the reason is, is they are both a dissatisfaction with what God has lawfully given. And so they are really a, a form of self-enthronement, idolatry, a substitution of something else, a pleasure that we want for the place that God deserves. So it's all too frequent that these twin sins walk together. Immorality and Covetousness. 
I won't turn there now, but you can jot it down, check it out on your own. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, verses 13 and 14. The apostle there shows you how they closely tie together among false teachers. Two of the characteristics of false teachers are immorality and greed. They run together. But greed is not just the dominion of the false teacher, right? It's a nagging canker that eats at the hearts of all of us. It is a nagging canker eating at your heart. Christ said, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, right? You cannot serve God and mammon or money. You cannot. Not it's hard. It's difficult. You have to work at it. He says you cannot do it. You cannot serve God and money. He says over in Luke 12, verse 15, nor does a man's life consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's an essential aspect of an elder's character, right? 1 Timothy 3, 3, that he be free from the love of what? Money. Solomon said money is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. That's a paraphrase. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10, right? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity, Solomon says. It's like drinking seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. Paul reminded Timothy, go with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Notice his reminder here to him. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7 and following. He says, We have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Man, is that a profound statement, right? I've done a fair number of funerals, and there are no U-Haul. In fact, there's not even a trailer hitch on the back of the hearse. You know what I'm saying? There are no U-Hauls that show up. There are no pockets in a funeral shroud. You cannot take it with you. And if we have food and covering, verse 8, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. But flee from these things, you man of God. Run away, he says. Don't just turn your back, Timothy. Run. Run. Beloved, it's very, very possible that materialism and the love of money is the besetting sin of our culture. Many times over the years, I've had people come up to me and they'll ask me, they'll say, Pastor... I ask you a question and I'll say, yes. And they'll say, um, how can a, a godly man, a man after God's own heart like David, how can he have more than one wife? Why didn't he know that that was sin? And uh, typically my response is something along this lines: Every society has certain besetting sins. 
certain sins in which they are sort of immersed in them and they don't really see them as sin. It's kind of like the fish, right? The fish doesn't know he's wet. Okay, He's surrounded by water and doesn't know he's wet. It takes someone from an outside perspective to look and see, man, you're, you're wet. Well, we can see David's besetting sin, can't we? And it's, it's an affront to us. But perhaps, perhaps the societal sin of materialism has so overwhelmed us that we're pretty good at picking the speck out of David's eye. Right? And we can't see the log hanging out of our own. I don't know. Just a thought. Just a thought. Contextually, how does this tie together back to Hebrews 13? Perhaps it ties together like this. Perhaps the financial losses that the church has suffered, right? Look back to chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. It says, in the former days, right? After being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Maybe go down to verse 34. Showed sympathy to the prisoners, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you yourselves have a better possession and an abiding one. So maybe, maybe what is happening in this, this fellowship here is, is that they have suffered so, uh, such adverse material loss, financial loss because of the persecution that has come to them, right? The seizure of their properties. That maybe there is a, there's a rising desire to sort of uh, accumulate or hoard or guard against that eventuality coming again. When the next wave of persecution is going to roll across them, they're, they're afraid they're going to suffer even further financial loss. And so there's a spirit of greed and covetousness that is beginning to grow within the fellowship. And, and the apostle here wants to cut it off. Maybe that's how it's tied together here. I can sort of illustrate this from the um, life of my own grandfather. My grandfather, he's, he's dead now, but he grew up through the Great Depression. And so he understood what it was like to have nothing. And so I can remember one of my clearest memories as a child even, in all my years growing up, whenever we visited my grandfather's house, is he had a very large food storage closet. And it was absolutely chock full of food. And if he, you know, he would take a can or, or a can of beans or something down, you know, and we'd have it for dinner, he would be within a day at the grocery store replacing that. So that his food locker was constantly full. Why? I said, I said, Grandfather, why do you have... It's only two of you. Why do you have so much food? He says, I remember the day when I didn't have enough to eat. And so he was hoarding it. He was accumulating and he was storing it. In, that, in case of that eventuality ever came again. What does that demonstrate? It demonstrates what my grandfather was. And that is an unbeliever. One who had no confidence in God to provide. Look again at verse 5, right? Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Why? For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You can be free from your greed. You can be content with what you have because God will not forsake you. God will not desert you. 
exact source of this quote is uncertain. Probably it comes out of Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. The word here, desert you, it's interesting. It carries the idea of, of losing hold. Losing hold on someone as if to sort of withdraw your support to them or your sustaining grasp. I think the idea would be uh, letting go of the rope. One is hanging on the side of a cliff face and you're on the top holding the rope and you lose your grip. That's what's being communicated. That's what it means to desert. So what he's saying is that God will never lose his grip upon you. He won't let go of the rope. Nor will he forsake you. And this, this, again, in the Greek, carries the idea of deserting someone on the field of battle or someone who is suffering. It picture the idea of, uh, of being in the battle and, and all of your, your uh, fellow soldiers withdrawing from you and leaving you out exposed and alone in the midst of the battle. They all retreat and leave you there. Or if you, were, you go down wounded, they leave you behind. God will not leave you behind. He will not withdraw from you and leave you exposed to the enemy all by yourself. If you're wounded, He will not leave you on the battlefield. He will not let go of the rope. He will not leave you to suffer. He will not desert you. He will not forsake you. So, therefore, verse 6, since we know this to be true of God, what? We can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Kind of a na-na-na-na-na-na, you know? Right? God's on my side. I don't have to worry. Beloved, fear is a debilitating sin. It is absolutely a debilitating sin. We must trust in God. We must Those who trust in riches, right, are in effect saying, God can't take care of me. I better take care of myself. I better save up because maybe God can't take care of me. It's, a, it's like a mirage, right? You're, you're, in the, you're in the desert and you're, you know, you're suffering from thirst and you look to the horizon and you see the mirage and you, you approach it and you get there and it's never there. And that's the way riches are. Wasn't it Rockefeller that... They said to him, you know, how much is enough? He said, just a little bit more, right? Just a little bit more. These are strong words. We can confidently say, right? The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Or how about said this way, Romans 8, verses 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? All right. If God gave you his son to redeem your wretched soul, will he not give you everything else of lesser value? You bet he will. God promises the believer that he will never let go of the rope. He promises the believer that he will never abandon you on the battlefield. And so we can join with the psalmist. Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Answer? Nothing. 
Nothing. All right. Let me see if I can apply this in some practical ways. Living like a Christian with regard to marriage and money. Practical steps for purity. You ready? Here they are. First, preach the gospel to yourself. Romans chapter 6. Preach the gospel to yourself. The gospel is not just for the lost. The gospel is for the redeemed. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself that you are dead to sin and alive in Christ. That sin no longer has hold over you. The life that you live, you live by faith in the Son of God. When lustful, tempt, you know, tempting thoughts or images come flashing across your mind, remind yourself that I am dead to that. I don't live like that anymore. I am dead in Christ. Secondly, flee from youthful lusts. 2 Timothy 2.22, or 2.22 rather. Flee from youthful lusts. Turn around and walk out. If you're in a checkout counter and there's various uh, materials there that are, that are offensive and I, there's hardly a checkout counter where there's not now, right? Look away. And if you can't, find, if you can't look away, then leave. Just leave the junk on the counter and walk out, okay? Flee youthful lusts. Take a different way home from work, gentlemen. There's a billboard that's offensive, and you know it's there, and every time you go by, you say to yourself, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look, and, and there your head goes. Take a different way home from work. Change your path home. Third, think on what is wholesome. Right? Think on what is wholesome. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable... Whatever is pure, right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Let your mind dwell on these things. So think on things that are wholesome and pure. Change the station. You know, that's why there's a remote control. Change the station. Think on what is wholesome. These next two are probably as much as anything for young men, so I'll, they're for all, but they're for you young men in particular. Avoid time alone. If you are struggling in these areas, avoid time alone. Be with other people, particularly in those times when you know that you are most tempted. And then if all else fails, go for a long run and take a cold shower. I'm serious. You know, channel that energy somewhere else. Those are some practical steps for purity. Let me give you some practical steps for contentment as we finish up here. I guess it begins with an understanding that contentment is a learned behavior and therefore takes practice. So the first practical step is practice contentment. Okay? Practice contentment. Philippians 4.11, Paul talks about that. It is something you have to practice. 
It just doesn't come naturally. How do we do that? Well, here's one way. Say no to something that you're entitled to. Something that you're perfectly entitled to. It's, it's lawful. It's within your financial means. It's, you know, whatever it is, just say no. Say no. So that you build a, a pattern in your life that you're able to refuse things. Third, regularly thank God for what He has given you. Regularly thank God for what He's given you. So the first is practice. Second is to say no. Third is to regularly thank God for what He's given you. Develop an attitude of thankfulness. Fourth, learn to recognize needs from greeds. Okay, learn to recognize your needs from your greeds. We are so good at saying, I need this, I need that. Right? But the reality of the matter is that in most cases for us, it's a greed. It's not a need. So we need to understand the difference. So learn to recognize it. Fifth, finally here, give away both your time and your possessions on a regular basis so that you learn how to hold them both with an open hand. You know, the only way to hold on to something with an open hand is how? Palms up, right? It's got to be palms up. So that you can give it to someone. You can hand it off. So just practice giving away time. Practice giving away possessions. Things that you, know, that are, that you have, and just learn to give it away to people. That you might learn to be more content with what you do have. So, some of those are helpful. This is, uh, these are tough topics. Tough topics. Contentment is a huge issue for us. All of us. Something that we really have to work at. And the purity of the marriage relationship is also a huge issue. We live in a time, much like the first century, by the way, right? When in Ephesus, every night the temple prostitutes would come down into the city. Okay? We live a lot more like the, the world into which the New Testament was written than our ancestors did. And if those early believers could make it, we can make it too, huh? And not only can we make it, but there's a sense in which there's an excitement because when the, when the unsaved world finally gets fed up with the, with the, um, with the fact that they're... they're Excessive lifestyle doesn't satisfy. Then they're ready for the gospel message. So um, don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. We live in an age in which the gospel should bear great fruit. If we will just live distinctly Christian lives and then preach the truth, so we have opportunity to do so. Let's pray. Father, Father, I pray your spirit would use his word to probe all of our hearts here tonight. Every single one of us struggles in both of these areas to one degree or another. And so, our Father, we do ask your spirit to press home his word. Not to discourage us, Father, not to, to drive us down into despair. But, Father, to help us to honestly look and see and appraise ourselves then to flee to the cross of Jesus Christ for grace. 
Our Father, grant us that grace to, to repent where we need to, to embrace the truth where we need to, to pick ourselves up out of the dust and walk again the Christian life. I pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight. I pray for myself, Father, that you would help us to live distinctly Christian lives before the communities into which we've placed us. Believing, our Father, that there is great opportunity to speak to others about Christ if our lifestyle will but support our testimony. Give us grace to do so, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.